I'm reading from Galatians 5, 1 to 12 today, entitled Freedom in Christ. And it goes as, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You're running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident. All right, we're going to finish Luther off. <laughs> it's time. <laughs> Poor Luther. 500 years uh, since uh, nailing uh, his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Chapel and uh, the world changed and I just want to talk about a little bit of the overview of uh, how he changed things and uh, just give you some stories and illustrations of uh, each one of these. If you go to the next slide, uh, point number one and uh, recovery of the gospel that uh, we are saved by grace through faith and uh, not by things that we do or not by w deeds or works. And uh, this, is, this is vital and uh, still vital today. So sometimes when you ask a Christian, uh, when did you come to Christ or when did you become a Christian? And you will often hear this answer. Um, when I was baptized, I guess. That is a common answer. I've heard that hundreds of times. Meaning they were baptized as an infant, that's when they became a Christian. And uh, even though Luther continued to baptize infants, uh, he would say, no, no, it's, it's the faith that matters. And unless you have faith, you are not a Christian. And uh, all of these acts, you cannot trust in the acts and the deeds. You have to trust in faith. God's grace, unmerited favor, you cannot earn it. You do not deserve it. He gives it to you. And uh, we looked at this key scripture passage, I think, last week. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 7 and 8. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, unto good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Second, key, Martin Luther, rejection of human authority, the Pope and councils, and he affirms the authority of Scripture. He affirms the authority of Scripture. I, I was reading... Uh, Matthew 22 this week, and in Matthew 22, uh, the Pharisees come up to Jesus with a question. Actually, the Sadducees come up with Jesus with a question, 
And the question is this. A man dies and his brother marries his wife and he has seven brothers. And this keeps happening so that all seven brothers marry this wife, uh, marry this one woman. Now, by the way, if you're brother number seven, why do you marry her? Um, but the question is, all seven marry her. So who is she married to in, in heaven? Who is she married to in the kingdom of God? And they're trying to show how ridiculous resurrection is. That's what they're trying to show. The idea of a resurrection's, resurrection is ridiculous. Let's see if you answer this question. And Jesus responds this way. Uh, how foolish you are. In heaven, we're not married. We're like the angels. And he goes, furthermore, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And it's just a, that little throwaway line. Have you not read what God said to you? In other words, as you pick up your Bible and as you read it, this is God speaking. You're responsible for that. This is God speaking to you. This is, this is Jesus' answer to them. Have you not read what God said to you? Uh, that is the authority of Scripture. It is God speaking. Point number three. What Luther changed the repudiation of the treasury of merit. And the treasury of merit, by the way, Roman Catholics still believe in the treasury of merit. The treasury of merit is that when they die, Mary and the saints have done so many good deeds that they've got extra good deeds. And the church can give you some of those good deeds. They are the keeper of that treasury. And they can give you some, if, if you're lacking in good deeds, they could go, well, Mary's got a whole pile of them. We'll give you some of hers. Okay? And uh, Luther goes, there's nothing in the Bible about the treasury of merits. It's just made up by men. It's not real. And he's right. It's not real. Notice what I go on. Uh, Luther and the rest of the Reformation comes to the idea that praying to saints and Mary is useless at best. Why is it useless? Only God can hear prayers. You've got to be an infinite being. You must be an infinite being to hear prayers. Right? We don't even know if anyone in heaven, Mary, knows what's happening on earth. Much less to hear prayers from more than one person at a time. That requires an infinite being. Only God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are infinite beings to hear prayers. So I say it's useless at best. It's idolatrous at worst. In other words, you are giving glory and prestige to saints and Mary that belong only to God. Uh, if you go to the next slide. Okay, other Luther benefits. 
And uh, I've got the Bible up there, and uh, I just read an article this week. Uh, this was what the person says is the greatest thing Luther did for us. He gave us the Bible, gave us the Bible in our own language so that we can read it. Uh, Luther was in uh, was actually at at uh, university before he saw his first Bible, and it was chained to a desk so that you wouldn't walk off with it because the only people who could have uh, Bibles were extremely wealthy people. And he actually read it, and he read the story of Hannah and Samuel. And it was the first time he had ever heard the story. He's in university. You know, we take these things for granted, <laughs> that we can read the Word of God and we can read the Bible and we can know these things. We take it for granted. And uh, let me see here. King Henry VIII. Uh, King Henry VIII authorized a Bible. It's called the Great Bible. It's called the Great Bible because it was so big. And he wanted every church to have a Bible because most churches did not have Bibles. They could not afford one. And I just think to myself, well, what are they doing in these churches? <laughs> if they don't have Bibles, like what's the point? Well, they didn't have the Bible. You would just go and they would say the Mass and that is that's the Christian service. So you really hardly knew anything about your faith. Henry VIII decided to come out with a Bible called the Great Bible, and he didn't want to use Tyndale's Bible because Tyndale translated some words funny. And uh, one of the key ones was the word for church. Tyndale translated the word church as congregation. By the way, that's what the Greek word means. It means congregation. Every time you see the word church, it means congregation or assembly of people. And the kings of England hated that. And so they wanted to make sure that Bibles never said congregation. Instead, they said church. So that when you read the word church, you would think, well, church is talking about bishops and priests and buildings not the people. Friday night I was over here, uh, late Friday night, and I could smell some smoke. And I thought, uh-oh, it smells like the church is burning. We have a wood roof. If it burns, it's going to go quick, <laughs> right? <laughs> wood, the, wood, the wood roof, it's well seasoned, it's nice and dry. And I thought, okay, I'll just, I'll just drive around the building and see if I see any glow on the top of the building. Then I'll know if it's burning. It's not just somebody having a campfire in the neighborhood. I didn't see any glow, so I drove home. The church is still here. But then I thought, wait just a second. If the church building burns up, who cares? This is a building. It's not the church. You are the church, Right? We the people are the church. That was one of the translations they hated. The idea that people would think that the congregation is the church and they thought the people will be empowered. They will think less of the bishops and the priests and the king. Therefore, we cannot allow that translation to go forward. By the way, it's stuck to this day. We still, we still translate it church instead of congregation. Uh, sometimes I wish they would translate those things literally, right? But whenever you see the word church in the Bible, it's talking congregation. Congregation, assembly of people. Um, 
Okay, now where was I? <laughs> oh, I'm on the Bible. Um, okay, that's, that's Luther's greatest achievement, and from Luther, uh, all kinds of Bible translations come about. I also read this week that we have, it's either 900 English translations or 9,000. And I'm not sure which one it is. Either number is huge. And they keep coming out with new ones all the time. I wish that every new English translation was because they wanted a nice, fresh reading of the Bible. Sometimes English translations come about because each publisher wants to have their own translation so that they can make money by selling the Bible. Um, unfortunately, it's a business. And this is the number one selling book in the world. So if you're in the business of selling books and you need to make money to keep your business going, you better be able to print your own Bible, <laughs> have your own copyright on the Bible so that you can sell it and make money and have a business. That's why we have so many translations today. Every publisher's got to have their own. Right? You can't just use NIV. That's, I forget, that, that Zondervan. And uh, so every, everyone comes out with their own translation. Notice the second thing up there. I've got additional Luther benefits. The sacraments go from seven to two. And faith is necessary. And the two are baptism and the Lord's table. The third thing I have up there is transubstantiation is gone. Transubstantiation is a fancy word for what happens during the Catholic Mass. During the Mass, the bread and the wine is actually turned into the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's a re-sacrifice of Jesus. And uh, that's why uh, in the Roman Catholic Church you're very careful with the bread uh, afterwards, you must eat all the bread. You can't throw it away. It's been changed in the body of Christ. The priest has to drink whatever wine has been poured. It's the blood of Jesus. It's got to be treated as sacred. Uh, when, they when, they change when they change the stuff, they say, hoc est corpus meum. This is my body from which we get hocus pocus. Right? The idea that this is some kind of magical thing, and uh, Luther got rid of that. I think that's good. Notice the Old Testament concept of worship was lessened. The Old Testament concept of worship is the kind of worship you see in the Roman Catholic Church. When you go into the Roman Catholic Church, it's based on Old Testament theology. And when you go in there, at the front they have a table. And what's the table called? called an altar and it's presided over by a priest and he's actually performing a sacrifice right re-sacrifice of Jesus and there is a barrier so that you cannot go up to the front because you're just a lay person and only the priest can go up there it's a sacred place kind of like the holy place in the temple and the priest has to do all the work an ordinary person can't do it it must be a priest. Uh, Old Testament concept of worship. And uh, Luther lessened that. Right? This is Old Testament. We don't live in the Old Testament. We live in the New Testament. Jesus Christ has come. All of these things were pointing to Jesus. And to keep doing it, 
is to miss the whole idea of it. Jesus has brought us all close. We don't need a priest anymore. Jesus is the priest. He's the mediator between us and God. We don't need another one. Um, priesthood of all believers within the church and outside the church. I talked a little bit about that last time. Um, one of the things that Luther did not like is he did not like priests not being subject to the laws of the land, which they weren't. They were subject to ecclesiastical court. And so if you wanted to get a priest, say, for rape, uh, you could not charge him. The church had to do that. And uh, sometimes the church wasn't that good at that kind of stuff. And Luther said the, the state has got to make sure that they enforce the laws and that the church doesn't have their own set of laws. Uh, you can thank Luther for that. Uh, priesthood of all believers also means that everything we do is a holy act where the Protestant work ethic comes from. The idea that all the work you do is actually glorifying to God. And the priest or the pastor, he's not doing more godly stuff than you. What you are doing can, is godly too. God, we need you to do it. When I was a boy, I always wanted to be a garbage man. Hey, listen, that's one of the best jobs in society. We need them, right? We go without garbage men for a month and we're in trouble. Those guys are great. <laughs> what a great job. Uh, Luther said, uh, God milks cows. The idea being that when a milkmaid goes out and milks a cow, God is pleased with that. And so change, a mother changing a diaper, that's just as pleasing work to God as what the pastor does on Sunday. Is that true? It is true. It is true. Right? That's the priesthood of all believers. And uh, that transformed the workplace. All of a sudden, people were excited to go to work. It also emptied the nunneries and emptied the monasteries. These people had joined nunneries and monasteries because they thought, this is the most pleasing work I can do for God. And then Luther comes out and he says, listen, ordinary work is just as pleasing to God. And everybody started going, well, what am I doing cloistered in this place trying to please God when the person out there sweeping the walk is doing things just as pleasing to God as what I am? And they emptied. Uh, if you go to the next slide. So if you look at the third one up down there, I've got clergy are allowed to marry, and Luther said most should marry. And it didn't take long for these priests to start marrying. And uh, the, pastor in, uh, the pastor in Luther's town was married in a couple of years. Uh, Luther didn't marry that quickly. And what happened was uh, Luther, because his monastery was emptied, his prince, Prince Frederick the Wise, actually gave Luther the monastery for his house. 
so he's got a fairly large house. And uh, people kept showing up at Luther's door with no place to live. And at one point, nine nuns fleeing from a nunnery showed up at his door. Luther thought, I'm responsible. (laughs) I have to take them in. And he did. And uh, eventually tried to find jobs and tried to find husbands for all nine nuns. Finally, there was one left. He kept trying to arrange a marriage for her, and she kept turning down all the people that he arranged. He's too old. Um, he's, too, he, he's just not compatible with me, whatever reason. She kept, kept turning them down. So Luther's left with not one nun on his hands. <laughs> and so they asked her, okay, who will you marry? And she goes, well, I'll marry Luther. That's who he married. Last week I told you that he says that he married his wife, Catherine, uh, because it would, it would please his father and it would spite the Pope. So, so he married her. Uh, it turned out to be a great marriage. They loved each other. Uh, Luther was horrible with money. His wife was tremendous. And uh, so she took over the home, and the home was large, so she always had about 12 boarders. Eventually, they would have six children, so six children, 12 boarders. She raised pigs so that they, w- they could uh, supplement their income. She brewed ale so that they would have extra money. She ran a farm and a garden and uh, every, every evening, Luther would invite people home for supper, sometimes as many as 40. And <laughs> she handled it all well. Did a great job. Great, great, great lady. Goes down as one of the great marriages in the history of Christianity. And uh, just wonderfully compatible um, and uh, Luther was actually very affectionate toward her and would write letters to her. We have, we have those letters today. Uh, that's a wonderful change that Luther brought in, that priests were allowed to marry, and uh, that was very helpful to the church. Um, notice at the top there, another change that Luther brought in was a change of music. Uh, the Catholic Church had music before, but it was a different kind of music, is more... Um, more arranged, it was difficult to sing to. Uh, Luther brought more congregational type hymns. Uh, he wrote a number himself. He wrote at least 12, 12 tunes and uh, numerous hymns. We still have one in our hymn book, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, uh, written by Luther, tune written by Luther. And uh, that was transformative in the church. The first hymn that he wrote was about two martyrs and I said two martyrs in Netherlands. They could have been, I don't know if the two martyrs were actually in Holland or Belgium. I think that country was united at the time. And I can't remember where those two were martyred, but he wrote a hymn to commemorate uh, them being martyred. Point number four. Um, what Luther brought. You notice I wrote mayhem, liberty. Um, as this permeated out through Europe 
and uh, people were reading Luther, the wave of freedom that swept across the continent was, was unbelievable, which led to mayhem. By the way, we still live with mayhem today. It's wonderful mayhem, I think. But not everybody thinks that way. The idea that there can be so many different interpretations in the way you live your life based on the Scripture. Some of the mayhem was the peasant revolt. They just, they, as they were reading their Bible, they were going, well, that king doesn't seem to be like he's doing what's right. I'm just going to rebel against him. The peasant revolt was crushed. Fightings between, fighting between Protestants and Catholics. Church mayhem. So, for instance, uh, Luther's pastor was a man by the name of Karlstadt. Very quickly, he was the first one to bring this new communion service into Wittenberg where people could drink the cup. They were never allowed to drink it before that. He did the first uh, communion in German. Uh, but he also started to read his Bible, and he goes, well, it looks to me like we shouldn't be baptizing infants. I don't find that in the Bible. Well, this was a huge problem. And uh, so Luther was actually uh, quite hard on Anabaptists. So, were, uh, so was the Reformed Church of Switzerland. They would take them and they go, well, you want to be, be an Anabaptist baptized again? We're going to baptize you again by holding you under the water. Drowned them. Um, if you want to see a picture of that, Darlene Cook has a picture of me baptizing her this summer. And if you look at the picture while I'm putting her under the water, I've got a mean look on my face. Like I'm, like I'm really trying to... Mm, really trying to put her under the water. Look, look, she brought that to church today. Look at that picture. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to drown her. Um, the, passage, the passage in your bulletin today and the scripture for today is based on mayhem or liberty. Notice, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So Christ died for us so that we could have freedom. Freedom. So what should you do? Stand firm in the freedom and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Go to the next slide, Lynn. Here's another passage that says the same thing. And I'll, I'll illustrate it from this passage. Colossians 2. Notice, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Now, I suggest to you, this is a command, right? Does everybody see that? That's a command, right? Do not let anyone judge you. You're commanded. So the way you worship on Saturday or Sunday... However you're, going to, however you're going to practice your Saturday or Sunday, don't let anybody judge you by what you do. They never had me memorize this when I was a boy. 
right? Because they gave us all kinds of rules for what to do on the Sabbath day or what you couldn't do on the Sunday. Terrible. They violate, they violate a, a clear command of Scripture because we actually used all those rules to judge people. And he specifically tells you, don't let anyone judge you. But sometimes we're so afraid of men or people, we're so afraid of people and their opinions that we just fall in line. When he says it's for freedom that Christ has set you free, and now you're letting people put straitjackets on you. Don't let anyone judge you by, ha- by what you eat or drink or how you, celebrate, how you celebrate Christmas. You can do it any way you want. How you celebrate on Easter and what you do or don't do on the Sabbath. You're free. Um, now I've got a big beef about it, right? Because I've always thought... I've always thought we are so selective by the scriptures that we take and apply. And this is like one of those I never even heard a sermon on it. <laughs> I go, why, why, why didn't I hear sermons on this when I was a kid? <laughs> Probably because I would have been quoting it to my parents. By the way, it doesn't apply to parents. You have to be obedient to parents. <laughs> Um, And so Luther was right, and this freedom swept across Europe, and it was mayhem. Give you an illustration. Uh, Switzerland. Switzerland very quickly caught on to the Reformation and was reading Luther, and uh, very quickly uh, the Swiss uh, became reformed, and uh, Zwingli was uh, one of the key pastors. I think he was in... uh, was he in Geneva? Hang on, it's in my notes. He's in Zurich. Who said that? Thank you, Sam. Let me check my notes to make sure Sam's right. <laughs> I don't even see it in my notes. I, I, think, I think Sam's right, though. 1522. Year 1522, just a few years after Luther nails the theses on the wall. 1522, Zwingli is at the printer, and they're printing one of his sermons. And for some reason, it takes a long time to get it printed. And so the printer is there, and he's got helpers there, and Zwingli is there, and it's during Lent. During Lent, you have to give stuff up. Actually, in Switzerland at that time, during Lent, you were not allowed to eat any meat for the whole Lent season. So Zwingli is there with the printer. They're so excited. They get it done in the middle of the night. They're so excited, they're exhausted, that the printer decides he's going to cook a meal for everybody. He cooks up some sausages. They eat the sausages. The next day, people find out they ate sausages. The printer's arrested. Because... It's a crime. You have eaten meat (laughs) during Lent. (laughs) It's a crime to eat meat during Lent. So Zwingli 
Now he's got to preach another sermon. And this time the sermon is regarding the choice and freedom of foods. And he says, listen, Christ died so that we could be free, so that during the time of Lent, we could give up what food we want, when we want, or eat what we want. That's part of freedom. This idea that someone's always telling you this is what you've got to do, it's wrong. In Christ we have freedom. Now, by the way, the fact that the state was enforcing the rules of the church, that was a whole other problem. By the way, they tell me that McDonald's came up with filet of fish just because they were losing too much business from Catholics on Friday. So thank you, Catholics, for giving us the filet of fish. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, this, 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 this freedom is, is troubling, and, it, and it's mayhem. If you look at what we have in our society today, just look at the churches we have in our city. Now, I think the freedom's wonderful, and let me, let me illustrate it. So here we are, we're Baptist church, and uh, not too far down the, down, the, down the street from us is an Anglican church. I know the pastors, they're all men that are born again, they're on fire for God. But the Anglican Church does things differently than we do, right? That's that's freedom, right? We're free to worship God how we want. And then if you go to, go this way a little ways, there's Bethel Pentecostal. I know all the pastors there. These are these are men and women on fire for God. But guess what? The Pentecostals do things a little differently than we do as well. They get a little more excited, and uh, they, they 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 exercise gifts of the Spirit. That's that's freedom. And then if you go uh, over towards Confederation Street, you have Salvation Army Street, Salvation Army, you know something, they're, they're, they're men and women of God as well, and they do things a lot different than we do, right? They don't have baptism, and they don't have the Lord's table, and I go, wow, that seems to be weird to me, but you know something, they're free to worship God that way, and uh, instead they emphasize helping the poor. And I look at all this and I go, I don't see this as mayhem is completely terrible. We're all working together in the cause of Christ. And when you put us all together, you've got wonderful different little emphases, uh, all to honor and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so I look at this mayhem and this freedom and I don't go, this is terrible. I, th I think this is good. People should be able to worship the way they want by picking up their Bible and saying, this is what I want to do. This is what I see. I think this is what's important. Luther brought us that. And you can see that that is the beginning of our idea today of religious freedom. That everyone should be able to practice their own religion the way they want. Uh, beautiful. Right comes from Luther, and if, if you just go back, if you go back a slide, oh, I guess we're done. <laughs> as uh, as John was reading from uh, from the from Galatians, 
I just wanted to finish with this. And this is not in your bulletin. I apologize. Uh, John ended with this. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Here's what's not in your bulletin. You, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. That's our freedom. Our freedom should result in us loving each other. That's our command. That's what we should be practicing. And uh, all of these other little rules and regulations, uh, be very careful. Right? We're free. Let's love people. Let's close with a word of prayer.